Hello and welcome to Truth in Learning. I'm Matt Richter and I'm here with my illustrious, brilliant, really incredibly good-looking partner, Will Talheimer, a research and practice expert, a guru of all gurus. Hi, Will. How are you? Oh, man. I, I'm almost speechless. That was so nice, Matt. I've been working on, on being non-authentic. So how did that sound? <laughs> <laughs> you were brilliant. Thank you. And I feel like that was not authentic too. So anyway, Will, you, you have a frog in your voice? You, you're sounding funny. Yes. Uh, I woke up this morning with a little uh, issue in my throat here. I had a sore throat, but I... Corona! Well, <clears throat> that was my first thought. And so I went to the CDC website and they have three symptoms. And this is a public service to our listeners. They have three symptoms of the coronavirus. It is uh, a high fever, a cough, and uh, being short of breath. Wow. And except for seeing you there, uh, which gives me a little shortness of breath now. Oh, I mean, because I don't blame you. Faces. faces for radio. Oh, let me. <laughs> Come on, let me get my thing in. Let me, let me say the. We have faces for 4K video. Come on. Okay, that. okay. All right, go ahead. You, you so want to say it can... one more time? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> so, so, yes, I have uh, woke up this morning with a little bit of a sore throat and my, you know, not feeling that great. But, uh, you know, I was worried about Corona, but I went to the CDC website and they have three symptoms there that you have to worry about. And one is coughing. Another is a high fever. And the other one is shortness of breath. Wow. And uh, I don't have any of those. Although, Matt, as I can see you there as my podcasting partner, I do have a little bit of shortness of breath. I, I don't blame you. Know, I don't blame you. No, the truth is that um, you and I have uh, faces for 4K unretouched video. So. Wow. Wow. That, that's just so funny. <laughs> That's really uh, good. That's just trying to preempt you. That's all I'm trying. I to mean, do, you know? I, I I guess part of the challenge is that given our title is truth and learning, that the real truth is not that we have faces for 4K, non-retouched, unretouched, Un, unre video. unretouched, yeah. unretouched video. It's that we have faces for radio. Yeah. 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 I'm, I was aiming a little higher, but it's probably the truth. I know. I know. It's, it's, it's good to be aspirational. <laughs> anyway, I am so excited by our guest today. Our guest today is Miriam Nealon, who, along with the great Paul Kirshner, wrote Evidence Informed Learning Design Creating Training to Improve Performance, which is probably, I think, the best book on learning and development that's come out in years. So it is, it is fantastic. Miriam, it is so much of an honor to have you here with us today. Yay! <laughs> Give us a little background on yourself and why you decided to write this book. I work as a learning experience design lead for Accenture, but I'm here today as me, myself, and I. Um, I lead learning experience design processes front to end. So I work with learning, you know, design teams, instructional designers, e-learning developers, social learning people. Uh, certification people um, and in my free time I write my blog and I do uh, research uh, for that uh, I work with Paul Kirchner as you said which has been brilliant uh, I've learned a lot from him and um, we basically just started this out four years ago and we're still doing it. Um, I, I think I can speak for him that he enjoys it too. And uh, at some point we just thought, okay, let's, you know, go one step further and write a book and hopefully spread the word about what we think is important, which is evidence-informed learning design. So can we uh, take a pause for a second and differentiate what you mean by evidence-informed, which is embedded in the title? and evidence-based, which is the phrase we hear quite often in our field. Right. So when, when you say evidence-based, that's, that's usually uh, that's grounded in, in medicine, right? So what they do is they work with the highest levels of evidence uh, in science 
uh, they usually have you know quantitative uh, data that they use uh, and and they use that in combination with you know their own practical experience and then the patient needs the distinguisher is in the level of evidence I'd say um, because in our field that's just slightly different um, I think we can definitely get there but at this point the evidence is you know often qualitative often some smaller scale in specific context so we just need a bit more cautious in general around how we interpret that data and then you know how we translate that to our practice i really really love the i don't know if i'd call it an analogy because it's it's in the definition so it's probably not an analogy but the linkage to medicine is pretty cool uh it later in the book you you use um, historically how doctors made decisions uh, and called it the, the three pillars. So they either made a decision by experience, they did it by saying, this is how we've always done it, or uh, it was eminence-based. And I, right. I thought this was a great um, explanation for how we do things in learning today. And right. uh, can you comment on what, what eminence-based at least is? Because I'm not sure our listeners are as familiar with that. And and how we're stuck in that today as learning folks. I think, so when we, when we discussed it in a book around, you know, medicine, we meant like those doctors or, you know, like who, or professor or whatever, who had, no, no, not professor, doctors who had like the most authority or the, the, the best, uh, what's that word? The status. Word yes, status, status, authority, credibility. Much. Yes, exactly. Um, and that's a little bit where we are in the learning field at the moment. Like, uh, I'm not going to call out any names, but if certain people say something, then people just almost take it for granted and run with it. Um, and that needs to change. I think we need to become more critical and use more objective evidence um, to inform our decisions. So, Miriam, many people in our field, when asked about why they use particular models or processes or resources, often they give us a tautological response, because it works. Or when they're asked how they know that it works, they say, I see it work. Uh, and one of the examples you give, or several of them, are like the Addy model in terms of design or Kirkpatrick in terms of Measurement, adult learning principles, such as adults have enough experience and internal motivation to drive their own learning, uh, which you talk about. So how do we resolve that? How do we, how should we resolve it? How, how do we deal with our clients or uh, our users who are looking at these things this way? Well, I, I think we do need to resolve it because... Um, we can't just continue to use things because we a believe it to be the right model or tool or whatever it is. Um, even if we think we see it work based on our experience, I don't think that's enough, and we shouldn't just accept that as evidence uh, because there's you know bias. There's a lot of different things that we need to be really uh, careful with. So how we would deal with it is I think around it, it should start with asking questions like how, how are they so sure that this is the right tool? What are they trying to achieve? Um, have they considered, are there any other tools that might be even better or models or whatever? Um, I think it's about challenging. Yeah. Asking like challenging questions and see if they even considered that there are other options in the first place. Your blog, and you emphasize this in the book, uh, about three star learning experiences. There are three things there. What are they and why are they important? So we say that a learning experience should be effective, efficient, and enjoyable. And um, just to be clear, when I say enjoyable, I don't mean fun. Um, hey, I what's mean, wrong with fun? Shouldn't all learning be fun? Come on. Nope. Um, no. So what we mean when we say enjoyable is that we need to make sure that, you know, learners experience success uh, or a feeling of accomplishment at each stage. And, you know, we want their like what we call self-efficacy, right? So the feeling that they're able to do something successfully to increase. And uh, 
so that they will, you know, remain motivated to, to keep learning. Um, so that's what we mean with enjoyable. Effective would mean um, people to learn more or more deeply in the same amount of time. And efficient, I think, is clear. Uh, well, although it's not just about time. So it's, it's you know, learning the same thing in less time or uh, learning the same with less, like, mental effort. And all, three, would, of the, all three of those things are, are uh, essential. We should aim for those. You should, yeah. So ideally, you focus on all three, right? Because, um, you know, when you impact one of them, you should make sure that it doesn't, that it doesn't impact negatively on any of the other ones. And if you can get, you know, consider, if you can consider like all three of them and influence them all in a positive way, well, that's the holy grail. So that's what you should aim for. Okay. So that makes, I mean, and, and that, that's where I think sometimes that fun problem comes in. So people say, uh, you know, a trainer says, I got to make this fun so that my audience is paying attention, et cetera. But then they forget about the effectiveness side or the efficiency side. They're either wasting right. time with fun activities or they're right. making an activity that distracts from the main. Exactly. That's, that's a really good example. And also, you know, cramming more content into the same time uh, is might feel more efficient, but it's not because it's less effective. Right. Oh, right. And that's why that's what that's probably the number one problem we have in the training field. Too much exactly. too much yes. crap. Yeah. Too much content and too, too much, much information. Content, yeah. Yeah. Too much infotainment. Exactly. Yeah, exactly. So you you and Paul both mentioned that there's a gap between reconciling a performance problem and solving a learning problem that's intended to address that performance problem. Sometimes it's possible to use a learning intervention and do so, and sometimes that learning intervention doesn't even come close. What were you guys talking about in reference to performance problems versus uh, learning problems? So when you have a performance problem, it means that, that an individual or a group of people is not performing a certain task, for example, um, correctly or insufficiently. Uh, whatever, there's a problem with their performance. What you first need to do when that's identified is that you need to figure out what is causing that performance problem. Well, beside, of course, like why is it important that it, that it, that it needs to be fixed. Um, but for example, there, there, there can be multiple reasons why there is a performance problem. It can be bad management. It can be part of like, uh, you know, inefficient uh, processes. Um, it can be incentives that are, so anyway, there are so many different reasons. It's not always a learning experience that can solve a performance problem. So you need to be really careful, um, with that. It, this seems so vital to me, uh, particularly as, uh, a lot of people in our, our industry conflate the two. I'm a right. performance consultant. That means I do learning and development. That it, it sounds like they're definitely not the same thing and they have different outcomes. I think a performance consultant would be at an earlier stage in the process. I think a performance mm -hmm. consultant would be or is supposed to be really good at teasing out what is causing that performance problem and what is the best type of solution. And then if they're good, they could bring in a learning team if after they have identified that it is learning, you know, that that is uh, the, the best type of solution for that performance problem. But that, that role doesn't use, usually exist right. in, in organizations. You sometimes have like business partners and some, I mean, of course there are good ones as well, but in my experience, usually, you know, the default of training is quite tempting to people. Yeah. Yeah. And it's often encouraged by our organizations. Hey, Hey, Will, we need a training on XXX. Yeah, okay. Right, yes. So Miriam, let's uh, talk about some of the things in the book that you recommend for us as learning architects, instructional designers, trainers, e-learning developers, that you recommend to us uh, that we should do. So uh, one of the things you talk about is using authentic learning tasks. Now, what is that? That is a task as it is, as it exists in real life. So a task that people would actually need to complete on the job. Um, 
And that's really important for learning trends for, uh, for people to be able to apply what they've learned. As in, if you don't know what they're doing on the job, then how are you going to make sure that they're able to perform that task when they're back on the job? So when you design a learning experience, you better make sure that it's designed with, you know, around that authentic task. I mean, that's in some sense, that's radical, right? Because oftentimes we start with our learning objectives, answering the question, what should our learners know? But you're just saying, forget that. Is that, am I right about what you're saying? Yes, forget that. Yes, yes. I, 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 I mean, if, of course, it depends how you define learning objectives. Um, but yeah, my point is start with figuring out what the task that people actually need to complete. And it can be multiple tasks, right? It can be uh, a process uh, with different tasks. But anyway, figure out what it looks like on the job so that you understand um, which parts people can learn through, you know, practice, where do they need certain tools, where are there really simple processes that they can just automate and, you know, learn the step-by-step -step process. So you need to understand um, what real life looks like. Okay, great. Now, what about, uh, you also suggest direct instruction. What? Yeah, yes. Versus discovery. Now, tell us about that distinction. So when I say, uh, when we say in the book discovery learning, first of all, we kind of acknowledge that the definition of discovery learning is a bit difficult sometimes. But when we say discovery learning, we really mean give people a problem and let them lose, you know, just to solve it, um, basically through trial and error. Um, and we are saying that that is an ineffective approach, usually for novice learners, not for expert learners, but for novice learners and this is really important and I think it's a big misconception that people think that adult learners are not novice learners because they're adults and they have experiences and prior knowledge which is true but not necessarily in the space where they need to learn something new so if I would need to learn how to play the guitar I would be a novice learner because I have never done it before well, you know, um, your, your point, I mean, that's really foundational, right? That we as learning architects ought to think about where our learners are uh, on the content that we're trying to get them to understand, the skills we're trying to get them to be able to do. We have to think about whether they're novices, whether they're more experienced. Definitely. That's, that's really important. And, and going back to the direct instruction, uh, first of all, it's not about lecturing, not about lecturing. I repeat. Okay. Because <laughs> <laughs> uh, when you look at the model, so you have two different ones, which I'm not going to dive into, but you have like the one with the capital DI from Engelman, and then you have the lowercase DI from Rosenshine. And um, Engelman focuses on goals and Rosenshine on steps. So the main point about direct instruction is that you really consider uh, how people learn when they're, you know, relatively novice and they need a certain flow. They need context. They need to understand how it's relevant for them. So you need to set the stage. You need to give them examples or model things. Then they need to practice in a guided manner. So you need to provide a lot of scaffolding and give them a lot of feedback. And as they go and, you know, when they progress, you slowly take that scaffolding away. And, you know, you move towards independent practice and, you know, you evaluate progress as they go. So that model to me uh, is, well, not just to me, like if you look at the research, that type of flow is really effective. Um, so that's what we mean when we say direct instruction. So, so in some sense, you know, there's a sense that, uh, that our adult learners, they should know what to do. and We can just sort of throw them in there and give them some stuff to work with. But you're saying that's, that doesn't really work. We need to be sort of a concierge or a coach to-, to Definitely, and, yeah. And why, why is that so important? Because people need the, the, the structure to be able to um, 
to make progress. Like if you throw them into the deep end, they are going to, I'm not saying they won't figure it out in the end. They might, but they are going to waste a lot of time. So it's not efficient. Um, and I don't think it's even fair to them because you need to help them kind of focus and understand why they're doing what they're doing and, and how, where they're moving towards too. So you kind of need to be able to show them, this is where you're at at the moment. This is where we need you to be because X, Y, Z, you know, that's kind of like the setting the stage. And you can do that in many different ways. You don't necessarily need to explain that to them. You can just give them a story or an example or, you know, something that, that, that helps them to, to understand like, oh, this is why I'm here and this is why this is important. And then the guidance is, I don't know how to explain it if people otherwise just don't learn that efficiently and effectively uh, yeah. with, without a structure and, and the feedback. So that's great. So, uh, you know, in your book, you go into a lot of d details about, you know, what specifically to do, how to design uh, learning to make it effective. You also talk about, and I just, you know, really quickly here, I, we, I don't want you to go into super depth here, but you talk about the top five effective learning strategies, right. space, space practice, retrieval practice, variable practice, questioning, and self-explanations. You want to just give us a quick definition for each? Sure. So, so well, Will, you should do <laughs> space practice because you've done a whole uh, research report on it. Um, but space practice is basically that you need to space out learning over time. Learning is a process. Uh, you need to help people uh, you know, people need to repeat things. They need to uh, remind themselves. Also, they need to forget a little bit and then, you know, go back and trigger it again just to strengthen memory traces and so forth. So that's based uh, learning. Then retrieval practice is basically re recalling learning content. And that doesn't mean memorizing, right? Because that's what people often respond when, oh, that's not important. You know, we don't need to memorize. It's not just that. It is basically remembering concepts um, can also be through through practice and um, you know kind of just repeating things and making sure that you uh, it's, it's heavily aligned with space learning right you just repeat it you remember it again you explain it again uh, and therefore you just remember it better and are able to apply it better um, interleaving or variable practice is same same thing so that's uh about that you don't that you shouldn't practice like one thing over and over again except when you need to automate something uh, maybe but that you need to find like you need to figure out you know maybe there's different context or slightly different you know varieties of how a task needs to be completed or uh how something needs to be applied and then you um you just practice that in different ways um and also uh what's that word like intermittently you do other things as well um and then you come back to it and you practice something slightly different so so uh you know there's a lot of um emphasis or use now of uh these uh space practiced uh software right and so it's not good enough to create one learning object, right? right? One learning practice session and just give it over and over and over. You need to vary that up a bit. Right. You need to, you need to give some uh, variety in, you know, there's always slightly, slight differences that people need to um, get better at. Um, so it, it doesn't make any sense to just practice the same thing all over again. Over and over again is what I mean. Not all over. What, what about questioning and uh, self-explanations? So the questioning is when, when as, a, as an instructor, or you can also do that, you know, with yourself, is where you challenge yourself to explain something. You know, why, why is something actually the case? And then, um, so the questioning is the first part. And then the second part is the explain to self. So that's where you explain it. So the first part is you challenge something the second part is you explain it to yourself and the reason why it's effective is because you're kind of forced to explain something in your own words 
and you know that's slightly different every time you do it so you get like again like the, the memory traces just become stronger and stronger and more flexible that's great so you also in your book you talk about the flop five you, know, you have the top five and the flop five we're not going to get into the flop five people have to read the book uh, but you also in your book you focus on myths and things that people Wait, shouldn't hey do. will let me interrupt you for a second i want to highlight i want to put a feeder in for people to get excited to buy the book uh, with regard to the flop five. So we won't talk about it, but I just want to highlight that Miriam and Paul have put rereading, for example, as one of the flop five. Can you give us just a quick teaser on that? And, and the fact that there are four other ones that might be surprising as well. So the rereading, uh, that's basically, you know, when you don't understand something and you just read the same thing again. That's, that's not going to, to, to work um, just because you are probably going to uh, cheat your own brain as in it's going to recognize what you've read before and then you think you build your understanding, but that's really not the case. You just start recognizing what you've read before. So you Great. need to find another way like questioning or something to figure out, you know, what it is that you don't understand or, you know, ask somebody, of course. Great. So there's a whole list of these that right. are counterintuitive and uh, I urge you to get the book and read them and don't reread them though. <laughs> <laughs> don't just reread it. Do <laughs> other things as well. <laughs> <laughs> so one of, one of the things that I've been uh, stressing for, for years, but from a psychological paradigm, is that feedback is a lot more complex than we teach it in management, and that there are all different types of feedback, and that feedback can be undermining of motivation, it can be inspiring, it can be controlling and manipulative, and that there are all different psychological effects to, to feedback. You and Paul talk about feedback from a learning perspective, and you give all different types of feedback, but one of the big takeaways is that feedback can actually hurt learning. Can you comment on right. that? Right. So, um, yeah, when you think about feedback, um, the, the, the biggest uh, important piece of it is that you need to help learners to reduce the, the gap between their current state and the desired state, right? So what's not going to help them get there is things like praise. And what I mean with that is not, you know, not necessarily positive feedback, but just like, well done, without explaining why. That's so a great answer. That's a brilliant <laughs> answer, Miriam. Right. You are so good at giving answers. <laughs> What was my desired state? Smiling. <laughs> <laughs> right. So, yeah. So, praise is one. Rewards is a second one. Um, just because it triggers your, you know, external motivation. And, you know, it's not going to help you get. So, it's going gonna, it's gonna to help you focus on the outcome, but not on the process. But, uh, but, but we, okay. So, there's some bad things about feedback. But overall... Are you saying not to use feedback or feedback is great? What, which we're just feedback is great. Feedback is one of the most important techniques when it comes to learning. Okay, um, great. This was just Matt was asking me which ones would. I know, I, and that always leads us astray. And I was just trying to make sure that our listeners left with the right memory trace. <laughs> no, especially formative feedback. So focusing on the learning process is critical for learning. Matt? Yes? Can I give you some feedback? Sure. <laughs> I just did. <laughs> I hope you see the, the signal I'm giving you right now. <laughs> I can see. <laughs> Good. I can see that. Huh? <laughs> That's there. <laughs> Good. All right, Miriam, uh, we want to ask you, you, you know, in your book, you talk about a whole bunch of things we should do, but you also warn us about things we shouldn't do. You talk about myths, misconceptions. Uh, why, why should people care about that? Because they're detrimental to our practice. They, they make us focus on the wrong things. Uh, they make us do the wrong things. Um, it's, 
they're just bad for learners, for organizations, money, outcomes, um, everything. As long as we focus on the wrong things, the things that are not true, we're missing out on the things that do work. So the, I don't know why they're so pervasive. I, I authentically am struggling with why we keep seeing things showing up. For example, I just saw Dale's cone show up on LinkedIn again, again, from a completely different source. A buddy of mine uh, just started talking about how coaching can help meet one's learning style. And I'm oh, like, yeah. ah. And uh, so why are these things so pervasive? I think, so So in the book, we have like three reasons. One is it's, it's you know, some concepts are just really hard to grasp. So people kind of tend to fall back on something that's more simplistic and, and easy to, you know, get your head around and work with. Because, I don't know, in my experience, people don't necessarily like nuance in the first place. Like they just want something yeah. that they kind of like can easy, you know, easily do. Um, I sometimes, when I, when I give a talk or something, and often people ask me at the end, okay, so now what do I need to do? And I'm like, well, maybe think about it and think how it applies in your context and what you can do with it. Because there's no easy takeaways uh, usually. So that's one thing. I think, you know, n not everybody is willing to invest time yeah. to really understand what something means. Um, I think overall myths play a role in, you know, um, people feeling that they belong to a certain group. Um, so it's us who believe in learning styles and we're all, you know, good friends and we are the learning styles friends and that's who we are that's our identity kind of thing and there's just a lot of information that's the third reason so how are you going to figure out what's true between brackets and, and not true um and then yeah. and then there's also the whole problem now i think and in the book we call that the photoshop effect where there's so much misinformation that sometimes it's hard for people to to think okay this is actually real. You know, I found myself falling for this reading the book. Uh, there were several points in the book where you introduced a very simple model or concept. You'd have a beautiful three circle drawing. Um, at one point later in the book, you, you uh, as you introduced the focus section, you, you talked about the tools, techniques, and ingredients. And I was like, oh, that's such a great recipe that I can, you know, with attribution use to explain good instructional design. And of course you can't. And then there's like 60 pages of depth that support it. And so I found myself falling for these same traps. And, and I, I, I think that's typical, right? I, that, that we look for easy, graspable ways to synthesize things yeah and there is so much to know as well so i think you know to some extent we can give people some slack as in you can't know everything in depth so sometimes you kind of need to well you've met will tallheimer right <laughs> who's that <laughs> he's not where, gonna laugh <laughs> where are we going where are we going with this <laughs> oh miriam you know uh do you see hope in this i mean you know yeah we've all seen uh and i saw a linkedin thing today on learning objectives which drove me nuts too but we've all seen bad information in our field uh you know clearly well that's a long discussion but anyway you know do you see uh hope that we're going to overcome these myths or that we're at least moving in a better direction we're, we're getting better and better at paying attention to evidence better and better at uh, pushing away from myths. well i mean i'm living in hope right because if i wouldn't have hope then i don't know <laughs> what to do <laughs> um so on one hand i do see a tendency towards you know more interest in evidence more acknowledgement that this scientific evidence is important you know in combination with other types of evidence like learner research stakeholder research uh, data you know um 
I do sense a tendency now to kind of flip to the other side of the spectrum and kind of call everything evidence now and, and then it's not. So I don't know. I feel that one of the, the challenges we're dealing with in our field is that uh, a lot of people just end up in this field and then don't necessarily have enough time to really dive into what we know. So I think, you know, research to practice people are really important in this um, context to help people make it, you know, easier to grasp and easier to use. Um, and what do you mean by, time, what do you, yeah. what's, what's a research to practice person? What is that? That's you, Will. <laughs> well, I'm asking the question for our listeners who probably have yeah. no idea. Right. Miriam, so, you should know that Will uses leading questions. Right. <laughs> I, that's my only podcast methodology. I stick to it, though. It's, um, it's people who read the actual scientific research, do all the work, put in all the effort to get their heads around, you know, what the scientific evidence says about a certain topic. and translate that in more layman's language so that other people can understand what the research actually says and hopefully also how you can use it. Okay, so you and I, you and, I and Paul are not the only ones out there doing this. Some other names you want to suggest for us? Oh, yes. Uh, Patty Shank, Jane Bozarth, uh, Julie Dirksen, Connie Malamed. Um, oh, God, I'm probably... Oh yeah! Now we're we're, we're going to uh, get Clark you in Quinn, trouble. Clark Quinn. Clark Quinn. <laughs> we're going to get you in trouble if you forget anybody. <laughs> I know. I, yeah, exactly. <laughs> no, but those are great um, names. Thank you. Yeah. Sorry to put you on the spot. Now, but I do want to uh, point out that we are running out of time, and I know Will and I wanted you to join us for a segment that we call "Best and Worst." Will you come back at the end to join us for that? We yeah sure. <laughs> Excellent. It, but before we let you go now, do you have any final words of wisdom? Any final pieces of practical advice? Well, so what I hope is that what people can start with at least is really reading, watching, listening with a more critical eye, ear, whatever. So that don't just buy into stuff don't just accept something that sounds cool or sexy or you know feasible even um just challenge and ask questions and look for nuance that's great that is great miriam nealon thank you so much for joining us today we are thrilled to have had the opportunity to talk to you. Your book is Evidence-Informed Learning Design, Creating Training to Improve Performance. You and Paul also have a blog. Uh, your co-author, Paul Kirshner. I will make sure that all that information is in our episode notes uh, and also a link to buy the book. Do you prefer to people buy it from your website or from Amazon or do you have a preference? No, it's available um, through Kogan Page, who they're, they're the publisher, and it's also available through Amazon, all kinds of like so at Barnes oh. and Noble. Well, I, think I it's, got it's I got it on yeah. iBooks. iBooks. Yeah, exactly. So I know there's no. I don't have a preference. I great. I'm just happy if you will buy it. <laughs> well, wonderful, well, Miriam. Miriam, thank you very much for joining us, but also for your work. Uh, you doing? You're doing great work, and. Uh, uh, people in the field should know about it and uh, keep keep at it. Keep at it. It's really good stuff. And Thank uh, you both. Just a quick plug. My my wife, Esther, has been making all of her friends in France buy the book. Oh, wow. And then Thank she, you, Esther. Then she's getting on with them and helping them translate words they don't know. Because cool. the, the book's not in French. So so she's been your your evangelical. So that's perfect. Thank evangelist? You. No, evangelist. Evangelist. So, yeah. All right. Well, we'll see you in a, a few minutes for best and worst. Okay. See ya. Thank you. That was a great conversation. It's a great conversation. And, you know, Miriam, yeah, you know, Miriam sometimes a little bit, uh, 
too humble, I think. You know, she's really done brilliant work uh, taking the research, uh, working with Paul, and really translating that into practical recommendations for people, and really fighting some of the common misconceptions that are out there. Um, and they do that on their blog. And now what they've done is they've taken that all and put it into their book. And I think it's just a valuable uh, resource. Uh, you read it, right? What do you think? And I've read it two times. I, I highly recommend it. If you, if you have uh, the money, buy it. If you don't have the money, steal it. It's a great book. No, no, wait a minute, though. You what? read it two times. I think one of the recommendations in there is that you shouldn't reread. So what's, what are no, you doing? No, let, let's be clear. She didn't say don't reread. She said don't reread when you don't understand something because all you're doing is continuing the, the lack of comprehension and uh-huh. you're building into your brain the notion that you do understand it because you become familiar with the words. And so rereading when you don't understand was the flop five line yeah. item, right? Yeah, yeah. So, but rereading, you know, thing, I think, is a good thing when you do you understand. I wish that everybody entering our field would be able to read books like this and uh, start their adventure in the learning and development field with a solid foundation. And that's what this book does. It talks about what to do, things to think about, uh, things that you wouldn't think about otherwise, right? Like, uh, you know, direct instruction sounds like something that, oh, we don't want to do that. That's like rote kind of stuff. Well, no, there's nuance there. In fact, we didn't get into this with Miriam, but she talks a lot about making nuanced decisions uh, in our work as learning architects. That's right. And she talks a lot about complexity. In the book, everything had, uh, well, take it from this side and then uh, let's explore that side. And and so one of the things I really appreciate that is that she and Paul really fleshed out all aspects of a topic because they really respect the, the, the notion that things are not oversimplified, that they're, they're more complex. Um, for example, with the, the direct uh, instruction component. I mean, Tiagi and I get accused a lot of just running activities and games, but that's not accurate. I mean, we use our games and our activities wrapped around what she was calling direct instruction. So we will do an activity sometimes before content, we'll do it during content, we'll do it after content, but it's always attached to direct instruction in the way she describes it. Because direct instruction is a complex, essential component of attaining a learning objective. Um, Well, and, you know, in the industry right now, there's people running around out there saying, you know, the learners know best. uh, No, they don't. (laughs) (laughs) Well, I mean, let's not go too far on the other side. Learners aren't idiots, but we all have blind spots. No, I'm just kidding. Oh, in fact, a lot of the trainers I've met are actually way stupider than a lot of the participants, but this is because of the the hiring process. I mean, I mean, some of the trainers we've met out there lack any credibility or uh, they lack the ability to uh, design, they lack the ability to modify, they lack understanding of how to uh, construct a, of a program, and, and yet they are responsible for teaching. And so there are a lot of trainers out there who are irresponsibly put in front of people. Um, and we've had that conversation before, but. Uh, well, and you're, you're not saying that these people are obviously terrible. They look good on, on the platform. Yeah. They sound know. good. They're funny. They're entertaining. Yeah. Yeah. But from a, an effectiveness standpoint, one of the things that Miriam focused on was don't just have fun. Uh, Make it enjoyable in a way that uh, supports uh, learning effectiveness, skill-based, skill training effectiveness. Now, there was one area in the book and in our conversation that I still struggle with because I agree with her usage of the word enjoyable. The concept totally makes sense to me. The word choice is, is troubling. I, I find that it, the usage of the word enjoyable is not colloquial. 
it's going to be it's the connotation people the connotation is fun yeah 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 and so so maybe we should differentiate again here and just reiterate it that that she's not talking about something being enjoyable in the way we think about pleasure that it's not it's not something that's that's fun per se what they're talking about is is also in the traditional sense they're they're talking about in some way engaging people through interest relevance significance getting people to interact with the material the content the activities uh in a way that's not boring but you're not saying because i've seen you perform you and i have done workshops together i love how you use the word perform with me and not instruct thank you <laughs> well, perform is such a strong word. You know, yeah, yeah. A strong, manly man that I just couldn't help myself. Yeah. So listen, I've seen you do your thing. Yeah. You help people have fun. They're having fun. I've seen them have fun. Yeah, but it's saying? not my goal. Oh, okay. So that's the distinction. Yeah, yeah. So so this is I, I, I just cannot understand why this is such a troubling concept. I am all in favor of people walking away saying that was fun. There's nothing wrong with that. This drives me insane. It's my objective is not to, to drive fun. My objective is some learning outcome. Fun is peripheral. Fun is, is a method. It's a tool I might build into the course. Tiagi runs a fantastic jolt when he teaches people how to have conversations uh, uh, in hospice centers. So he works with nurses, hospice nurses. There is no way he's using a fun activity. That's just inappropriate. And he's teaching these nurses who do a horribly difficult job to talk to, to patients' families about the end of life. And, and through that process, the activity he uses, a lot of times people are crying at the end of the activity, but they're getting feedback they're practicing, they're taking some time and trying it again, getting more feedback. Uh, he'll vary the level. Uh, there's questioning that goes on. They have to sit through and debrief themselves and try and explain the methodology to each other. In other words, it employs all five of her, Miriam and Paul's effective learning strategies, but there's no way that's fun. Right. Right. Well, you know, I really think this idea of nuance uh, is really interesting. And I sometimes, when I do a workshop, I tell, I have this little, I have a picture of a chef. And then I have a picture of the, you know, that red circle thing with the cross through it, you know. Yeah. And I say, look, I am not here to give you recipes, you know. And I tell them I think recipes are bad for them, et cetera. Uh, because I want people to have a deeper understanding, a nuanced understanding of things so that they can make their own decision. And, and I yet, think that's this, and yet this, this is what we're asked for. It is what we're asked for. And it's what people like, because as you said, uh, in our conversation with Miriam, unless that part gets edited out, uh, <laughs> <laughs> what you said was that, you know, um, uh, I forget what you said now. <laughs> anyway but you know that that's the thing that uh this book uh because it takes us on such a nice journey into the depths of learning design uh, research-based or evidence-informed i always fall back to research-based but evidence-informed learning design it really is valuable for all of us whether you're a newcomer or whether you've been in the field for a long time Absolutely. And there were a lot of opportunities from the book for us to dive deeper, but we only had Miriam for about an hour for recording time. They have an entire section on neuroscience and it's one of the best debunking uh, chapters on, on neuroscience as a learning uh, trans transitory tool, right? It's great. Um, and at the same time, they're not debunking neuroscience per se, they're debunking its application with regard to learning. And so that's great. Um, one of the other things we didn't, we, we started in on it a little bit was, uh, how do we talk to clients? How do we talk to people 
who are pushing uh, us to use something we don't want to use because it, it's ineffective and we know that because of the research. And when they, we push them and they say, well, it works for me. This, this is good enough. Uh, in fact, we're going to talk about that when I do my worst. My worst is one of these conversations. And, uh, and, and I, I found Miriam's answer almost idealistic in a way. I, re I liked her answer. Um, but this, I'm, I'm becoming more cynical that people don't care. Uh, I'm starting to, to feel like, eh, people will pay me anyway. I don't have to do the work. Or uh, my boss will be satisfied. No one gets it anyway, so why not just do what makes it, uh, me comfortable? And, and whether it's tautological and they don't fully understand or whether on the more cynical side, they don't give a damn. Um, I, I think the, 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 the trouble we're running into is, uh, is uh, research-based, evidence-informed. All of these things are, are sometimes like beating our head against the wall. Well, I think we're, <clears throat> we're in a great battle. <laughs> Seriously. And I've, I talked to, uh, I think it was a couple of weeks ago, talked to somebody who was advocating for, a, and I forget the details, but it was a, advocating for some evidence-based um, recommendation. And the person that they were trying to convince basically said, I don't do research. <laughs> I don't care about the research. And, uh, you know, that's troubling. But I think more and more people... Um, and, you know, there's a lot of folks uh, who are advocating for research-based, evidence-based practice. I mean, just like our president. Oh, I, am, I mean, I, I know we shouldn't talk about politics, and I don't want to date the episode too much, but we already mentioned corona. But his, his comment yesterday, disagreeing with the mortality right that uh, WHO put out, because he, he World thinks Health it's Organization. Wrong. He thinks it's wrong. And when asked why does he think it's wrong, he said, I have a hunch. This is the president of the United States objecting, rejecting the statement from the World Health Organization about the, the potentially pandemic coronavirus. This yeah. is horrifying. And it then is. he says the reason he is dismounting, uh, objecting to it is because he has a hunch. This is well, not setting a tone for for good critical thinking and learning and development either. Well, fortunately, he is a very stable genius. And uh, uh, by the way, good book, excellent book. Oh, that's a book I didn't know. That. Yeah, two Washington Post uh, author uh, journalists wrote a book, and they named it that based on his quote. Uh, <laughs> it's an excellent, highly recommended book. Well, there is in the world now, there is uh, an anti-science backlash, anti-expert backlash. And I think we in the learning field uh, feel that from time to time. We have to be careful of that. The word elite gets a bad rap, I think. Oh, yeah. So uh, the word elite could imp uh, mean something horrible, but it doesn't. It's a select group that is superior in terms of ability or qualities to the rest of the group or society. And all of a sudden, we have this, this notion that elite is a bad word or it's a bad adjective to be uh, associated uh, with someone or some group. Uh, I'm sorry. I think it's good to strive to be elite. It's good to strive to be competent and as good as possible. It's good to have superior competence. There's nothing wrong with this. It's well, we celebrate eliteness in sports, in music and entertainment, right. but not in science so much. Right. I mean, it's, I just don't understand it. Or we, we, it's okay if you go to a, a university in the Midwest, but if you went to Harvard, you're a horrible human being. By the way, I didn't go to Harvard, and I didn't get in. So, uh, well, Matt, I can see Harvard from my window. Wow, yeah. I they do. won't let you in either. No, they won't. The fucking elitists. <laughs> <laughs> uh, so, you know, I think this is, this is problematic. 
um, this notion of elitism as a bad thing necessarily. Well, there's always a danger uh, if you are in the elite that you'll develop blind spots. And I think, you know, we should be careful of that in the leads. You know, but that's true. If you're dumb too. I mean, <laughs> I mean, it doesn't matter if you're dumb <laughs> or elite. <laughs> well, I mean, you can have blind yeah. spots as an idiot too. Well, but you know, there's, there was talk in, in our presidential election here, there was talk about these, you know, some of these billionaires, they just don't, really understand how the rest of us live and they just when they say a statement they sort of expect everybody just to go along with them and uh you know that's a problem i think if you do if you get too celebrity-fied you can have you're more likely to uh have some blind spots because people it's like a manager in an organization right you are blind because your direct reports are, are probably unlikely to tell you how they really think about how you're doing, right? so. It, it, yeah, and uh, the trick is if we affiliate that notion of blindness with the fact that they're rich or for other factors. Now, might there be a correlation between them being rich and blinded in certain societal realities for the middle class? Absolutely. But, you know, you have people who are blind to many fact facets of life and, uh, it could be because they're rich. It could be because of their education. It could be their lack of education. It could be a, a myriad of different factors. Well, you know, let's bring this back to the to the book, and yeah. I really want to highlight the the partnership between Miriam and Paul. Okay. So I don't know if we emphasize this enough. Or Paul Kirshner is one of the great um, researchers in the learning field. And he tends to focus a lot on the education space. And he, he's, um, he's an academic. He's an academic, um, but he's also been advocating to take the information that's in the academy and getting it out there to where it's actually going to have value. He wrote the book along with, um, oh, I'm going to mispronounce the names, Pedro de Broquer and Carl Holsuff wrote the book, two books now, um, myths about urban myths about learning and education, right? And there's two of those books. They got a whole list of things that can go wrong that we make mistakes of in learning. So he's been out there advocating. But so you talk, you know, you might think, well, he's an elitist, right? Um, but not really because he's out trying to convey stuff. And then you've got Miriam, who's a practitioner. She's a learning architect. She's a learning experience designer, and uh, she also has an, an overlap and interest and studies the research as well. And by combining those forces, I think it's really powerful. Yeah, I, I totally agree. And uh, I think we have so many things we can talk about uh, with regard to the book and, and, and evidence-informed learning and learning design that uh, I'm sure we'll have either both of them or one of them back on the show. Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. So, all right, let's transition to best and the worst. You know how it goes, but for we're going to welcome Miriam back uh, to share her best and worst. Uh, but in the meantime, let's give a quick overview of what we do. So, uh, we, each time we, we air an episode, Will and I, and hopefully our guests, contribute a best experience of the last week with regard to learning and development and a worst experience of the week. And of course, we have a tremendous amount of flexibility in the time that best or worst happened and of course, flexibility in what defines best or worst. So we'll kick it off and just start with Miriam. So my best is for this week, Michelle Ocker's reading group for L&D. So she has decided to start a reading group for learning and development people around research. So I am delighted that she has initiated this and uh, I wish her all the best with it. I'm going to follow it and support her um, as much as I can. Wow, that's awesome. Great, will you send us the link so that we can put that in the notes? Sure. All right. And what's your worst? So the worst was that I saw another example on Twitter where somebody based on their own 
personal experience with education came up with recommendations on how education needs to be in reinvented and it just drives me nuts uh, that people really think that their personal experience you know hindsight right because as adults like you think back about your school and your memory you know everything has changed over time and yeah they just share their experience and then based on that they feel that the whole education system needs to be redesigned uh, because that would have worked better for them and i don't understand why people think that that's a good idea to do in public or anyway that's hubris yeah, said agreed. best agreed so great thank you miriam all right will you ready you want me to go yeah you go Okay, so my best. I was working with uh, Emma Weber of Lever Transfer of Learning out of Sydney, Australia. And uh, she funded some research, partially funded some research that I began doing two years ago on uh, the transfer of learning. And so we came together and did a webinar this week. But I was reminded of all that Emma has done to try to uh, use research-based practice in, in her work, in Lever of Learning or Lever Transfer of Learning in their work, um, but also she's actually supporting. You know, she funded me a bit to do some research. Also, uh, we, she and I and an academic researcher came together and we looked at doing some real uh, academic research. We started down this path. We we worked on it. We found how difficult it was. But there she is, uh, pushing this, funding it. And to me, she's Emma Weber is being a real great role model for um, people in the vendor space, people in L and D in general. Great. What's your worst? Uh, well. My worst, since we're talking about the coronavirus, is actually the, and I wrote a blog post on this, is the CDC, actually, I don't think it was a blog post. I think I wrote a uh, article on, on LinkedIn. LinkedIn. Yeah, it was on LinkedIn. I wrote a, uh, uh, an article about going to the CDC website, and the first thing you see, you're trying to, you're searching for the coronavirus, and the first thing you see is coronavirus 2019. And so what does an average person or anybody looking at that think? You think, oh my gosh, this is old information. Where can I get new information? So they drop off the CDC website and they go somewhere else and they get bad information. So I just was very disappointed uh, in that title. I felt like the CDC should know better. They should they should have access to social scientists, and I know they have them there. And uh, they should uh, also, they should be doing some A-B testing. And, and you know, uh, they should know from the response rates they get and the visitors they get, how many people are dropping off, how quickly, et cetera. So anyway, that was my worst. Okay. My best has to do with the all of a sudden total openness to do virtual training using zoom and of course i can attribute it to the the spread and potential spread of corona but um all of a sudden people are calling us to say can you teach us how to use zoom number one for training purposes and number two can you design training that we were going to do live but now we need to do it virtually and uh, this is opening up so many doors and possibilities uh, among people that were unwilling to view that medium as an option, which is great. Now we have to be careful that, that it's not the medium that's going to define the design, but all of a sudden people are open to it. So I see that as a potential best, and I'm going to view it as a best for today. And, and I'm going to concur with you. I've seen the same thing. People have come to me and said, Will, we need to put our, all our courses online now because of the corona. So can you help us? Yeah. My worst, and uh, I hope my friend uh, is lying when she says she listens to this podcast because I'm throwing my friend under a bus. Oh, anyway, nice. my friend uh, runs a training company. She has a small firm in a foreign country. 
not in the U.S. And um, I called her out on the fact that she uh, identifies all of her work as being neuroscience-based on her website. Mm. And I said, first of all, it's not. Secondly, I know everything they do, and there's absolutely no way that any of what they're doing is based on hardcore research. And thirdly, when I say, tell me how it's based and grounded in neuroscience, she can't do it. So we had this long conversation and she, she said, well, I, I work mostly with HR people and they don't question me the way you just did. And they love the fact that I say it's neuroscience based. So I said, okay, but you're going to take it down, right? I mean, it's wrong. I sent her your white paper uh, with the literature review. I shared with her the chapter from Miriam and Paul's book. I um, showed her a whole bunch of articles, none of which I'm pretty sure she looked at. And she said, look, they don't ask, they don't care, and it gets me business. Wow. So, and that kind of just broke my heart a little. Yeah. Anyway, that's a wrap for Truth and Learning. Uh, Matt, your will. I and, will. Uh, and hopefully all three of our listeners uh, enjoyed the show today. And of course, we thank Miriam. Miriam, thank you for joining us. Thanks so much for having me. Great to have you, Miriam. Thank you. Take care, everyone. Till next time. Mm-hmm.